All right, we will uh, look at, uh, everybody got the notes? This is lesson, uh, what, 15? Lesson 15. I, I titled that Essentials and Non-Essentials because, uh, because Paul is dealing with the question of food, and this question about food uh, applies to a lot of other issues. Christians have the right to have the they have the right to do certain things uh, that are not sinful that are just morally neutral and uh, but they can also give up that right we saw that in chapter nine remember the whole problem here is that the Corinthians are going to these pagan temples it's really idolatry but they're influencing others to go that's a bad thing. And Paul in chapter 9 says, you know, in my own Christian life, I've been willing to give up certain things. I've been willing to sacrifice my own pleasures and benefits for the sake of the gospel so people can be saved. So I'm willing to, uh, when I'm with Jewish people, I don't eat my ham sandwiches, but when I'm with the Gentiles, I'll eat the ham sandwiches, you know, because food is is a non-essential in the Christian life. You know, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, There's no food that's unclean, as Jesus said. But for the sake of the gospel, I might give that up. And so that's, it'll be a lesson for us here in this particular chapter. So we're looking, first of all, at our quiz from last week. In the first part of chapter 10, Paul uses Israel as an example of of those who failed to win the eschatological prize, that is, future salvation. True or false? True, he does. Remember he said, they, from his point, they didn't make it into the land. Their bodies were scattered in the desert, scattered in the wilderness. They had all these privileges. They had a kind of baptism, that is, they went with Moses across the water. They saw the great miracles. They had a kind of Lord's Supper. They drank that from that rock. They ate that manna. And yet, <laughs> they turned to idolatry, the golden calf. So they failed to enter into the land. They failed to win the prize. Paul indicates that Christian baptism was practiced by the Israelites. No, no. He's just using Christian baptism as similar. Okay, I, I'm just drawing an analogy here. They had a kind of like... <coughs> Baptism, you might say, because they were with Moses in the cloud and in the sea, but they didn't, they weren't. Old Testament saints were not Christians. <laughs> they were saved, but, you know, technically they weren't in the body of Christ like we are, and so in that sense. Every temptation is ultimately a trial, and every trial brings a temptation. True. True. God always removes us from a temptation or trial if we ask with enough faith. No. no. Remember even Paul said, uh, I had this thorn in the flesh, this physical infirmity that was bothered me, and I asked God three times to remove it. And he said, yeah, Paul, I will. No, he didn't. <laughs> he said, my grace is sufficient for you. I used to, when I was in seminary <clears throat> and I was going to work every day, Somehow I got on, I'd listen to the radio station because uh, it was about a 20-minute drive. It was like 12, it was like 12.15 or 12.30. Jimmy Swagger would come on. Remember Jimmy Swagger? 
Pentecostal preacher, <clears throat> kind of disgraced guy. He's an interesting guy because he had this 15-minute radio program, and he would he would uh, teach through the Bible. You don't hear too many Pentecostal preachers doing that. So I was interested in, in listening to him to see what he believed. But when he came to this passage, he said in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul said, you know, uh, he asked the Lord three times, well, what does a Pentecostal say about that? Jimmy Swaggart said, you know, obviously Paul just didn't have enough faith. You know, if he had enough faith, you know, God would have removed that. But Jimmy just, uh, but Paul just didn't have enough faith. That's what Jimmy Swaggart said. Because that's what, that's generally believed. It's a matter of your own personal faith and trust and so forth. <clears throat> so, we're looking at uh, chapter 14, chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. We're talking about this whole problem of food sacrifice to idols. And uh, we are looking at chapter 10 now, where Paul is talking about, he's actually coming down and saying, you can't go to the temples. He used the example of Israel. He had an application and warning against idolatry in verses 6 through 13. Now he comes right out and prohibits it um, in this particular passage. I say, this section brings to an end Paul's extended argument with the Corinthians that began in 8.1 and that concerned their going to the temple feast. Paul now finally asserts an absolute prohibition against idolatry. That's in verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So Paul gives two reasons for this prohibition that he's going to, in verses 14 through 22, he's going to give a couple reasons here why he's arguing to flee from idolatry. And he's going to say, because Paul understands these sacred meals, whether we're talking about a pagan meal in the temple, or even a Christian meal, the Lord's Supper, as a kind of fellowship, a kind of sharing. Uh, it's the sharing of the believers with the deity you are worshiping. Uh, and so he's going to talk about that. Secondly, he's going to come right down and say, as I understand the Old Testament, these idols, though they are really nothing but stone or wood or whatever, there are demons behind these idols. And he's going to explain that. Let's look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The logical conclusion, therefore, of all that Paul has previously said, is the Corinthians should flee from idolatry. Though Paul uses the language of an attender appeal, this is a prohibition, pure and simple. So this is, a, this is an appropriate appeal, an appropriate word of warning, uh, appropriate appeal to follow that word of assurance in verse 13. God will provide a way out of genuine trials, Paul says in verse 13. But my dear friends, that does not mean rushing headlong into idolatry. When you just deliberately rush into sin, don't expect, you know, don't ask for God's help. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. There can be no doubt that the prohibition announced in verse 14 is absolute. Now, Paul will seek to show the Corinthians how sensible it is based on their knowledge of the Lord's table. 
Remember, the Corinthians prided themselves in their knowledge, in their understanding of things. And so Paul says, I speak to sensible people. And since he, he, he since he, since these are sensible people, he appeals to them. Judge for yourselves what I say, meaning what I'm about to say. What does he say? Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So along with 11.17 through 34, which we'll get to in a while, because <laughs> next week we'll cover chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, Lord willing, and then we have four weeks off, remember, for the newcomers class and new members class, so we will, we will not be meeting for those four weeks, so we'll start in March. So March, we'll take up... Uh, 11, 17 through 34. But in that passage, that's one of the other passages where Paul refers to the Lord's Supper. It's the passage that a pastor often quotes when he is doing, uh, when we're taking the Lord's Supper, he'll quote lines from chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. I say, however, we should note that here in chapter 10, the ordinance is not the focus of Paul's concern. He's not trying to explain it. What's the focus is the pagan meals addressed in verses 19 through 21. That's the focus. This passage serves as the basis for what Paul will say in 19 through 21. So he's going to use the Lord's Supper to say there is a kind of fellowship, a sharing that goes on in the Lord's Supper. And that sharing is incompatible if we're talking about meals in the temple, worshiping idols. Um... So just common sense should tell them that they shouldn't be in these pagan meals. Basically what Paul argues is that there's something inherent in the nature of the Lord's Supper that makes participation in the other sacred meals absolutely incompatible. The Lord's Supper is a koinonia. Remember Pastor Ken often mentions this word koinonia, koinonia. The word for sharing or fellowship or participation. The Lord's Supper is a koinonia, which means a fellowship or participation in something. Paul's point or emphasis is that in sacred meals, pagan or Christian, one has koinonia with fellow participants and with the deity during the meal as they worship the deity. The early church, you understood that in their meetings, Jesus was present. God is present. We believe that. Remember Paul says earlier on in the case of uh exercising church discipline. The church was supposed to remove the man who committed incest from the church. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in the way I've already passed judgment. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm the one who's been doing this. Remember the incest. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. So Paul understood that in the assembly of the saints... God is with us. He meets with us. There's a, there's a fellowship there. There's a participation there. So uh, it's this unique relationship between believers and with the Lord celebrated at the Lord's table that makes it impossible to associate at the table of demons, 
which is what these pagan meals are about, verse 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we share the one loaf. As I said, that koinonia refers to a common sharing in the Lord's Supper that binds the Corinthians together as the people of God. That experience makes all other meals idolatry. Paul's point in this verse is there's a solidarity. All believers are in the body of Christ, and that forbids other unions. And he makes this point using the analogy of the bread. There's this common loaf, and uh, that, that means we, have, we share it together. The phrase, because there's one loaf, looks back to the final words of verse 16. When the Corinthians take the Lord's Supper, they all share a common loaf, which the Lord had identified as his body. Paul now asserts that the body in that identification is to be understood analogically as the church, who even though there are many, are one body, because there is one loaf at the table. When Paul adds an explanation, explanatory four here, for we all share that one loaf. By common participation in the single loaf, the body of Christ, believers affirm that they work, that they together make up the body of Christ, which in turn implies that they may not likewise become partners in similar associations that honor demons. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in in the altar. Paul now gives another analogy from the sacred meals in Israel. So he's used the Lord's Supper to say, you know, there's this, I'm trying to draw an analogy here. The Lord's Supper is a participation. When we win the Lord's Supper, we're worshiping our God, we're fellowshipping with other believers, we're, we're in one body, and that ex- excludes these other kinds of participations. Now he's going to give another example from the people of Israel, from the sacred meals in Israel. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate, it's the same word koinonia, but koinonas, a similar word, in the altar. So Paul is referring here to the sacred meals described in Deuteronomy 14. Paul says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produced each year. Actually, Israel had... From what we understand, three tithes. They had a, a tithe, 10%, that went to the Levites to support the institution of the temple and so forth. They also had this tithe that we're talking about here. Um, it's difficult to know whether... And then they had a third tithe. Every third year, there was a tithe for the poor. So you could say they were giving 22.5% a year. It may be less because some people calculate this tithe as a tithe of the 90% left over. <laughs> it's complicated on the math here, doesn't it? So instead of, a tithe, instead of this tithe being a tithe of the 100%, it's a tithe of the 90, so it might be 21 and a half. But anyway, they were giving over 20% a year, basically. And these tithes were basically like taxes in a sense because we have, we have, we have, we're going to have to fill out our income tax pretty soon. I got. I might. I got to order TurboTax. I guess here and get that. So, so we're going to pay our taxes to support the government we love. Now wait a minute. <laughs> the Israelites were paying these tithes to support the government. They were supporting the Levites, the the, the the institutions, and so forth like that. So, 
Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the first fruits of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his place so that you may learn to revere the Lord. So the Israelites were supposed to come at the festival, at the feast, and uh, eat, eat there in the presence of the Lord. There was a sacred meal there, is what we're talking about here. So the, the language, eat the sacrifices here, uh, that we're talking about here, do not, do not they eat the sacrifices, refers to the meal that followed the actual sacrifice. They brought, they sacrificed, and they ate then. Paul's emphasis seems to be that by this meal, they were thus bound together in their common worship of their, of Yahweh, of Jehovah, of the Old Testament God. And by analogies, the Israelites could not then participate in pagan sacred meals. They're bound together with their with Yahweh, with God, Old Testament. And if they do so, it's idolatry. It seems likely that the reason Paul has added this example from Israel is that it is more closely parallel to the pagan meals, which involves sacrifices. The the Lord's Supper is not a so he used the analogy of the Lord's Supper because we have a participation with our fellow believers and with Jesus. But that Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice like this sacrifice was of Israel. That's a little better example in the sense of it's a sacrifice like going to the pagan temples was a sacrifice. Uh, the Lord's Supper is only an analogy of a sacred meal. The Christian sacrifice, Jesus, was offered once for all. We're not having a mass. <laughs> This is what our Roman Catholic friends are wrong, not only wrong, they're in serious era her heresy about, is they're offering Jesus over and over again, and that is not to be done. That was a once-for-all sacrifice. We celebrate that once-for-all sacrifice at the Lord's Supper. We remember it. We call it a memorial. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial, a memory. We remember what he did. Verse 19. Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Beginning in verse 19, Paul will now apply the analogies of verses 16 through 18, but he has to correct a possible misunderstanding from the preceding argument. When he asks, do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything? The intended response is, of course not. There is a sense in which Christians participate in the body and blood of Christ because we benefit from the broken body and shed blood. But this does not mean that Paul allows there is any genuine significance to the food eaten by pagan meals, at pagan meals, as if it were actually sacrificed to a god. Nor does Paul mean to imply that an idol is anything. Now, on this point, Paul and the Corinthians are agreed that an idol has no reality. In that sense, an idol does not represent what we might call a true God. But what the Corinthians have failed to discern right along is that when they're worshiping these idols, participating in these feasts, the idol does represent supernatural powers. Actually, you know, as he's going to explain in verse 20, they represent demons. Verse 20. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. <clears throat> Not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. 
On the contrary, Paul reminds the Corinthians. The preceding argument does not imply reality to idols, since idols do not exist. The Corinthians do not become partners with idols, but demons do exist. And pagan sacrifice is demonic. Paul's language here is from Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. The truth, that truth from the scripture leads Paul to the heart of the matter. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So the food sacrificed at these pagan meals in the temples, Paul says, has really been sacrificed to demons. And that means people who are at the tables, at these feasts in the temples, are sharers in what had been sacrificed to temples, to demons, in the same way that Israel shared in what had been sacrificed to God. Now, since at the Lord's table no sacrifice is involved, it takes this additional example from Israel, as I said, to clarify the present assertion. So Paul's point is very simple here, as I've said. That pagan meals are, in fact, sacrifices to demons. The worship of demons is involved when you go to these temples. And one who is already bound to the Lord, one who's a Christian in the body of Christ, one should not fellowship with demons, obviously. <laughs> Under any circumstances, you can't participate in that. So if we think about what the Bible says about demonic... The Bible teaches us, stay away from anything that smacks of the demonic, you know? Stay away from anything that smacks of the demonic by association or whatever. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of the demons. Using very blunt language here, Paul emphasizes... You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. These words serve as both a warning and prohibition. They warn in terms of the following rhetorical questions in verse 22, as we'll see, and they prohibit in the sense of pointing out the absolute incompatibility of the two actions. A person is not merely having a celebration with friends in the temple. He's not just sitting down with friends at these pagan temples and having a meal. He's engaged in idolatry, an idolatry that involves the worship of demons. Verse 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The argument now comes to a conclusion with a final set of questions. Although, the, although questions, they really amount to a strong word of warning. In the original language, the questions are joined to the preceding sentence by or, which implies that they offer some kind of alternative to verse 21. Or are you trying by eating at these tables, by going to the temples? Or are you, are you trying to arouse the, George Wellet, George, the Lord's jealousy? Are you saying that you are stronger than God is? Um, so by the first question, Paul is saying something like, or will you continue eating at both meals and thus arouse the Lord's jealousy as Israel did in the desert? It's not exactly clear what Paul means in the final question. Are we stronger than he? Most likely, this is the final warning that God's jealousy cannot be challenged with impunity. 
those who would put God to the test, they're testing God by saying, I'm going to go to the temple anyway. I don't care what Paul says. Those who insist on going to the temple are in effect taking God on. They're challenging God by their actions. They're daring God to act. They're they're foolhardy, but they're secure in their foolhardiness. They think of themselves so strong that they can challenge Christ, Paul says. But their foolishness is very, very dangerous because as professing believers, if they continue in this route of disobedience, when Paul has said, don't do this, he's given them reasons for doing it, it's demonic, and if they insist on doing this, you know, you have to wonder about their real possession of salvation. When Christians just act in total disobedience to the truth of Scripture, it raises questions about their salvation experience. Where they really say it's not, it's not always easy to tell because we know we all can become carnal and disobedient and fall away and that kind of thing, but it's a, it's a dangerous thing to test the Lord. So I say in conclusion, what Paul is ultimately forbidding for the Corinthians and by application for us is any kind of relationship with the demonic. Well, we come to the final uh, thing here about food sacrifice to idols, and that is on eating of marketplace food. Paul has now already finished, Paul has now basically finished his argument with the Corinthians over the assertions in their letter related to the attendance at temple meals. Eating sacrificial food at the temple meals is absolutely forbidden because it involves the worship of idols and demons and the demons behind them. But Paul still, that still leaves the issue of meat that is sold in the marketplace, which apparently Paul himself had been known to eat. And the reason we say that is because Paul said, you remember in chapter 19, I mean chapter 9, though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So when I'm with the Jews, I observe the food laws. I don't do anything to offend the Jewish people. I want to win them to Christ. So I just don't brush in and, and you know, as I joke, bring my ham sandwich or something. I don't eat pork or something. I, I try to observe uh, Jewish customs and so forth so I don't necessarily offend them. To those under the law, I became like one other law so as to win those on the law. But those not having the law, Gentiles, I became one not having the law. Uh, so, so as to win those not having the law. So if I'm with a Gentile audience, you know, I can eat their food. I don't, I don't observe Jewish restrictions there because all food is clean. And so, so apparently the Gentiles, the, 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 the Corinthians knew that Paul ate probably food that had, was sold in the marketplace. And so that's the question. Okay, you can't go to the temple, but what about this marketplace food? As I say here, almost all meat sold for human consumption in the Greco-Roman world came from the leftovers of pagan sacrifices. Remember we said there's at least 23 temples in Corinth that have been found. There was no general slaughterhouses and packing plants for cattle, sheep, or pigs. Jews were the exception. They slaughtered and prepared their own meat. 
The nature of the Corinthians' argument for eating at the temples has revealed the basic confusion between absolutes and non-essentials. That is, non-moral issues. The Corinthians had tried to make attendant, temple attendance a non-essential. But for Paul, it was an absolute because it was idolatry. Now, at the same time, they confused the basis for true Christian behavior. For them, it's a question of knowledge and right. We say, we know that these gods are real and we have rights. We have freedom. We're free in Christ. But knowledge and, and, and rights can lead to pride, often does. And they're ultimately non-Christian because the outcome is selfishness. Freedom to do as I please, when I please. Don't tell me. Don't restrain me. But love and freedom lead to edification. That's ultimately, Paul is advocating love for my fellow brethren. Because I love my fellow brethren, I am free to give up certain things to win them to Christ. I'm free to curtail my actions. Uh, so, because when I'm with the Jews, I'm free not to eat that ham sandwich because it doesn't make any difference whether they eat it or not. And I want to win them to Christ because I love them. And I'm not trying to assert my right there. Paul now addresses these issues by using concrete examples from food purchased in the meat market. Two settings are envisioned here. Food purchased for eating in one's own home. So if you want to get some meat in Corinth, you went down to the meat market, generally. And you bought it there. And that meat, at least most of it, had been dedicated in the temple, first of all, to some pagan god and then sold in the streets in Corinth and the meat markets. So first, food, eating food in one's own home, and second, an invitation to meals in a neighbor's home. Somebody invites you to eat. Verse 23. I have the right to do anything. Notice this is a quotation again. Quote, I have the right to do anything you say, you Corinthians say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, he's quoting again. But not everything is constructive. Not everything is, this is the word for edify, builds up. It builds up spiritually. Paul again quotes from the Corinthians letter using the slang language of 6.12. I have the right to do anything, you say but not everything is beneficial. One of the loose ends from the preceding argument is the Corinthians' insistence on rights. The insistence on rights is especially related to Paul's own freedom to eat idle food sold in the meat market. So what follows here is not simply a defense of his actions on this matter. Rather, he's, he's, he's going to set out, set up, he's going to, Explain his own attitudes, I guess, toward food as a model for Christian behavior, which he insists will go back to Christ himself, chapter 11, verse 1, as we'll see. As he did in 6.12, the slogan, I have the right to do anything, receives a double qualification, the first of which is an exact duplication of 6.12, but not everything is beneficial. It relates to what is beneficial for someone else. This is made clear by the second qualification which does not make a point but reinforces the first. But not everything is constructive for other people. It doesn't build them up. 
It means spiritually constructive, to edify. For the Corinthians, the idea of rights means the right to act in freedom as they saw fit. For Paul, as with his own rights, like we saw in chapter 9, verse 12, 18, and so forth, it meant the right to become a slave to all. And here, it's the right to benefit and build up others in the body. Verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. The qualification about rights in verse 23 is now repeated in a general admonition. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Consequently, freedom does not mean freedom to seek my own good. It means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek to benefit and build up another person. Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. The concern of verse 25 through 30 is personal freedom with regard to non-essentials, non-moral issues. Food is not a moral issue. There's no food that's inherently sinful. Snickers are not inherently sinful. I'm telling you, they're not. You know, there's no food. There is no physical substance that's inherently sinful. Sin is not in some physical substance or anything like that. Um, so on these matters one is truly free these non-essentials on the other hand such freedom is not the ultimate good in a believer's life therefore one may also freely abstain in context where someone else is concerned that seems to be why Paul begins with the admonition of verse 24 because even in matters of personal freedom there must that this must always be in view. No one should seek their own good, but of the good of others. That stands at the top of freedom, of my my of non-essentials. Even in non-essentials, I, I should not seek my own good, but the good of others. That seems to be why Paul begins with the admonition of verse twenty-four. Because even in matters of personal freedom, there is always this must always be in view. But what this admonition does not do is lead to rules or obligation of abstinence as a general matter of course. This is true freedom. So Paul begins with the criterion of the good of others, but he now proceeds here, notice in verse 25, to establish what freedom is. It's freedom. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. One's own personal freedom is not to be judged by others. Now, since most all meat in Corinth came from the pagan temples, what is the Christian to do about obtaining meat for their own meals? Paul simply says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. As I just mentioned, as I just said, that uh, this meat sold in the meat market was meat usually butchered by pagan priests in pagan temples. Now, the Jews were forbidden by the rabbis to eat such meat. They couldn't go to the meat market and, and, and eat that kind. This was well known in the Roman Empire. Jews didn't, didn't eat that normal meat. They took care of their own meat and prepared it and called it kosher, which means proper, even today, kosher. So look, you look for kosher foods, properly prepared foods are marked in the supermarket. 
Um, <clears throat> so it was possible in some cases and required among the Jews to investigate. You know, investigate. If this meat's in the meat, meat market, Jews might buy it if they investigated it and found out, okay, this was not in a pagan temple, this did not come, maybe there was some meat there that didn't come or something. But Paul is telling the Corinthians just the opposite. Don't conduct such inquiries. Don't ask about it. Just go there and buy it and eat it. Meat is meat. Buy it, eat it. Don't raise any questions of conscience because this lies outside the matter of conscience, moral consciousness, moral right and wrong. It's not a right or wrong. Verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The word for indicates that Paul is now giving the basis for his view of the Christian's freedom when it comes to marketplace food. <clears throat> he does so by citing Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is the passage used by the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, to support their contention that a blessing must be said over every meal. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we should thank God for our food. And because Paul cites this passage here, it seems likely he's reflecting the Jewish use, usage, the Jewish thinking of the Jewish practice of saying a blessing or a thanksgiving over the meals, especially in verse 30, because he's going to say later, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness. See, there's the blessing. There's the thanking God for the food. So he's talking about, and he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's why I can, that's why I can eat it. Because I'm willing to thank God for what he is giving. But the rabbis, when they said this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, they're talking about food that had been thoroughly investigated and found out to be kosher. But Paul uses this text in a different way. He uses this text to justify the eating of all foods. Eat whatever is sold because it all comes from God. It all comes from God. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it, and there's nothing... There's nothing sinful about anything God has created physically. There's no physical substance. Now, you can use substances, you know. Poison is not inherently sinful. If you use it to poison somebody, you know, you might use it to, to poison something that needs to be gotten rid of, you know. But I'm just saying there's no... So Paul says everything God has created is inherently good. There's nothing sinful about that. So Paul uses this text to justify the eating of all foods. But the, so, um, you know, God is sovereign over all things, as we've seen, and, and everything God has created is good. Whole creation is good. Um, everything belongs to God. It's not that part belongs to God and part belongs to idols. There's nothing like that. Idol food loses its character as idol food as soon as it comes out of the temple. And it's not associated with worshiping. If it leaves the the arena of the idol's purposes. So now that it's not there in the temple, it's just meat laying on the slab, it can be eaten if it's taken with thanksgiving. Verse 27. If an unbeliever... So the first instance is, you're just going to buy some meat in Corinth. You just buy it and you eat it and you don't ask any questions for conscience sake. There's no issue of conscience here. But, here's another issue that might come up in Corinth. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, 
Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Paul now takes up another place where a believer at Corinth might encounter idle meat from the meat market, being invited to someone else's home. In this case, there's no question as to the source of the invitation. We know it comes from an unbeliever. Paul says it's perfectly acceptable to accept the invitation. And in language almost identical to his advice about eating idle meat at home, he says, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So when you buy meat for yourself, the question rises in the shop. When you go to a person's house, the question arises at the table. But Paul says, in neither place is do you inquire about the origin of the food. You don't inquire at the shop. You don't ask about the shop. Where did this come from? You don't ask when you go to a neighbor's house for a meal. He's an unbeliever. Verse 28. But, but, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, other person's conscience, not yours. So he says, don't eat it for the sake of the conscience of the person who told you. For Paul, personal freedom is not absolute. It's always conditioned by the rule of verse 24. Seeking the good of another. So remember we said that's what this section starts with. Even though we may have rights, we may have freedom and non-essentials, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. That takes priority in making use of our freedoms and rights. So he uses this second instance to offer a hypothetical example of a situation where the principle of verse 24 would limit one's freedom. The first issue that needs to be resolved in interpreting this, these verses is the identity of the person Paul is thinking of with the word someone. But if someone says to you, who, who is this person? Are we talking about the host, the person who invited? That's the first possibility. Second, a pagan fellow guest. Or third, a Christian fellow guest. Now, the least likely is the possibility of a fellow believer. Um, the reason why I say that is because if a fellow believer is going to uh, raise such an objection, he probably wouldn't come to the thing anyway. If this, if this fellow believer, he knows he's going to a pagan's house, he knows there's going to be meat that's been offered to an idol, that's where he got it in the meat market, so if this is a Christian who says, hey, do you know, that's, uh, well, he wouldn't show up anyway, probably. He wouldn't, he wouldn't come. But even more difficult is the word that is used here when he says, this has been offered in sacrifice. Now, we've been talking about meat offered to idols. We've had that expression, meat offered to idols. That's one Greek word, idolophuton. And that is a very pejorative word. That's a very negative word. That's the word Paul uses. It's been offered to idols. This is a very negative word. It's the word that Christian Jews, uh, Jews use to speak of this kind of stuff. This is a different word. This is the word that pagans used. And it doesn't have any negative consequences for them. So the person is saying this is not 
saying in a very pejorative sense. He's just saying, hey, you know, this this was offered at the temple, you know. So he uses a word uh, uh, rather than the standard Jewish or Christian designation of idol meat, which Paul used in these earlier chapters chapters here. Um, So... um, it doesn't look like that this would be a fellow believers. Um, the other option would be the host, but that seems unlikely too because if Paul uses the word someone, the way the Greek is constructed here, he says in verse 27, he says, you know, uh, if an unbeliever invites you, probably in Greek you would say, and if that one says to you, you would refer, the way you would say this in Greek would be in verse 28. If you'd mentioned the unbeliever in verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you, in verse 21 you would say you, you would say this, and if that one says to you, that person who invited you, this seems to indicate a different person here. So, as I say, so most likely the someone whom Paul is thinking of is another guest who was himself a pagan. Okay, if that's true. But why would this pagan guest raise an issue as to the source of the meat. Why would they bring it up? The answer is probably that Paul imagines, now, I mean, this is not, there's no absolute proof that what I'm saying is right, but it's probably right, because I said it right. No, it's not. This is a tough passage, you know, I'm just trying to work through here, so it's tough to figure out who these people are. But, I think it's likely here that, uh, and most people think this is the case, most commentators think this is the case, is that uh, this is the pagan trying to help the Christian out. In other words, the pagans were well aware of the Jewish prohibitions about eating meat. They knew that they wouldn't eat this marketplace meat and so forth. They assumed Christianity is a sect of Judaism. You know, we've seen that. Paul goes to the synagogue. There's a lot of Jews saved and so forth. So, the 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 the, the, uh, the Romans early on looked upon Christianity as a Jewish sect. It may be that this person is trying to help the Christian out by by saying, "Hey, I know uh, you don't eat this kind of meat. You Jews, you Christians don't eat this kind of meat." And so he's just saying, "Hey, did you know this was first offered to an idol?" Uh, I say, but if this is a pagan guest, we must first determine how the pagan's conscience would be affected by what Paul did or did not do. Paul argues that in this case, the believers should not eat both for the sake of the one who told you and for the conscience sake, which immediately clarifies in verse 29 is for the the person who told you this, the pagan's conscience. The pagan's conscience refers to the sense of right and wrong. So the person who has pointed this out, the pagan who has pointed this out to the Christian has done so out of a sense of moral obligation. He's trying to help the Christian out in his religion, believing that Christians like Jews would not eat such food. So Paul says, in this case, it might be better to abstain, to uphold a good uh, a good example of moral consistency in the pagan's eyes. In other words, Paul sees, if you eat this, the pagan may see you as being inconsistent in your Christian life. He may think, Christians, I mean, I know Christians don't eat this food either. And if you eat it, then they may see, may, may see that as a, as a, as you're not a very good Christian. And so Paul says, a Christian can do this. They can say, no, I won't eat that because it's not a matter of moral consciousness. 
it's, it's not a sin one way or another, but I, in the freedom, because I'm concerned about this other person, this pagan, I can say, okay, I won't eat that. So Paul says, we're trying to uphold here this moral consistency. I always think about an incident many years ago when I was up at uh, Port Huron at a church preaching on a Sunday. And uh, I um, I was younger then. <laughs> and there was an older gentleman and his wife. We were staying at their house in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, Sunday is the Lord's Day, but it's not the Sabbath. So if you go... Shopping today, you're not breaking the Sabbath commandment. Remember that, okay? You're not breaking the Sabbath commandment. Uh, now we usually we usually have, we we observe the Lord's Day mainly for worship and things like that, but we go out to restaurants and other things like that. And we, you know, Jews wouldn't do anything like that. Jews only travel three thousand cubits. They can only go three thousand cubits on the Sabbath. That's a Sabbath day's journey. So have, the Jews and even Orthodox Jews today. They walk to the synagogue on the uh, Sabbath day. On Saturday, Saturday is the Sabbath, you know. But you know, in our Christian culture, Sunday has become, in Christ- like a Sabbath for many Christians, it's like a Sabbath, and many Christians won't do anything on the Sabbath. They, you know, they observe it very strictly and so forth. But I just remember we were in this, we were with these people, and we were going to their house, and and uh, so Pansy's back there. I can tell it's on Pansy now because she's the wicked sinner who said this. But uh, this wife, this wife, the guy's wife said, "What do y'all do on Sunday?" Well, what do we do on Sunday? We go to church morning. We go to church at night, and we usually just go home or we go out to eat. We used to go to Bill Knapps. You remember Bill Knapps? Yeah. We used to go to Bill Knapps every Sunday. This is back to the Bill Knapps day. For some reason, for some reason, she said, "Well, sometimes I go shopping." Well, she may have and she may do, but it's not usual. But Again, there's nothing wrong with that, I'd say. But this lady just, she was in horror. <laughs> you know, you're, you're supposed to be a preacher's wife, you know, and you're out there shopping on the Sabbath, you know, and it's just that kind of thing, you know. It was a it was a case of, they just couldn't quite get that moral inconsistency there, you know. So, uh, don't ever say that again, Pansy, that you go shopping. <laughs> but there is that question of moral inconsistency. Verse 29b, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thanksgiving, thanks, thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? These rhetorical questions are a little difficult. The best solution is probably to take the two questions in 29 to take the two questions in uh, 29b and 30, that is these two verses, as responses to verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. In 1027, we learned that Paul gives the Corinthians the latitude to attend a dinner given by an unbeliever without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. He then interrupts this thought with a parenthetical observation that if a pagan guest announces that the food has been offered to a sacrifice and sacrificed to an idol, they are to abstain from eating. The conscience does not come into play in this, in this situation that is the conscience of the pagan. 
Paul then in 29b through 30 returns to the thought of 27 to explain why it's permissible to eat whatever is served at an unbeliever's house. If one can partake with thankfulness to the one true God, how can one be denounced? Why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? For eating that over which one has said a prayer of thanksgiving. A Christian who can genuinely give thanks for this food and has no thought or intention to engage in idolatry need not worry about his own conscience in eating the food. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greeks, or the church of God. With this inferential so, Paul's drawing an inference conclusion, Paul now in 1031 through 111 brings to a conclusion his discussion of the idle food in chapters 8 through 10. He begins with the imperatives of these two verses. Paul is dealing with the question of a Christian's conduct in non-essential matters, which began with the principle that the Christian does not seek his own good but one that of one's neighbors. However, that should not be taken as eliminating personal freedom. So Paul used the example of marketplace food and insisted on freedom in those matters. The blessings offered over one's meal based on God's prior ownership of all things means that no fellow Christian may condemn another on this question. So Paul now concludes, in light of verses 23 through 24 and 25 through 30, two imperatives must control behavior on such matters. First, everything must be to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do for the glory of God. And second, one must not cause anyone to stumble, Jew, pagan, or fellow believer. So verse 31 picks up the theme of freedom and gives it focus here. We have freedom. What is not or cannot be for God's glory should Bob probably be excluded from our freedom, what, whatever you do. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, however you exercise your freedom in Christ, your freedom to do things, the non-essential things, you're not free to sin. <laughs> We're talking about non-moral things, free to do moral things. You know. Whatever you do, Paul says, it needs that needs some focus. It's not just unlimited. It needs a focus. It should be directed to the glory of God. Verse 32 then picks up the theme of the legitimate limitation of freedom in terms of the effect of one's behavior on others. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. It might be thought that the imperative of verse 32 would render ineffective the preceding instruction on the Christian's personal freedom. How can one live so as not to offend someone from one of these categories? Don't cause anyone to stumble whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Two things need to be noted. First, Paul's point is concerned with behavior that's intentional. Don't intentionally do this. That is, with regard to eating and drinking, one is supposed to pursue a path that... One is not supposed to pursue a path that is to the detriment of the other. Second, one must understand that the Greek word translated 
cause anyone to stumble or offend in some translations. So many translations have had in the past here, don't offend anyone, whether Jew, don't offend Jews, don't offend Greeks. Offend is a, <laughs> it's a very light term. The NIV is translated, don't cause anyone to stumble. This expression means to stumble into sin, to cause someone to sin. It doesn't mean to hurt one's feelings, you know, when someone comes up and says, you know, uh, I don't like what you're doing, that's offensive. Well, you know, okay. They, they, sometimes they just mean, I just don't like it. It offends me, I just don't like it. Well, that's, that's not, that's not the, that wouldn't be a reason just because someone dislikes it. We're talking about something that causes someone to stumble in their Christian life. It's a strong expression, meaning to behave in such a way as to prevent someone else from hearing the gospel, to alienate someone who is already a brother or sister. So what Paul is saying here is, and we'll see in the next two verses, he's calling upon the Corinthians to follow his example that he's already spelled out in chapter 9. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul now offers himself as an example of the kind of conduct he's urging on others. His statement, even as I try to please anyone, everyone in every way, along with the final purpose clause, so that they may be saved, indicates he means something very similar to what we saw, remember, 9, 20 through 22. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Those not having a law, I became like one not having a law. So, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To, the win, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. So... Um, you know, we should note here that the idea of pleasing people in the context of evangelism is normally anathema to the Apostle Paul. You know, think about these verses. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God. Galatians 1.10 Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Um, in those passages that we're looking at here, uh, he's referring to the kind of conduct of itinerant philosophers, uh, religious charlatans who try to curry favor of other people, you know, to win their approval, to gain their approval. And this goes on all, of, all the time in the religious world. Paul's concern is not that he himself is pleasing to them, but that his conduct be that it doesn't stand in the way of people being saved. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so they may be saved. So Paul is interested in not trying to please people for the sake of gaining their approval, but he's trying to prevent, do anything that... He's trying to, uh, well, to use Pastor Ken's phrase... Pastor Ken has been trying to preach this to me for about 15 years. He always uses the expression, knocking down unnecessary barriers. He's been talking to me about this for years and years. This is his idea in our church here. So he's trying to, by the things we do, we don't want to put up unnecessary barriers for people 
to hear the gospel as best we can. We're not trying to. We're not going to compromise the message, but we won't, we don't want to have any unnecessary barriers that just turn people off when they come in the door. We want them to feel welcome as best we can, not be turned off, so they can hear the gospel, hear the message, and be saved. That's what Paul is trying to do here. Verse eleven. I mean, chapter eleven, verse one. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's unfortunate that the chapter division, which was done in the 13th century, is misplaced here, since clearly the imperative of this verse is meant to conclude Paul's previous discussion. It's not enough for, the, for Paul that he appeals to his own example. The Corinthians are to follow, imitate that example in the same way he has imitated Christ. So the emphasis here is certainly on the example of Christ for which Paul finds you know, primarily in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Christ, ha- We look at Christ's example of putting others first, putting the needs of others before his own freedom, for his own rights, doing what was necessary to secure their salvation. That was the motivating force behind what, what Paul is saying here. I do all these things to win some. And that's Paul's approach to ministry. He wants that to be the Corinthians' approach. He wants that to be our approach. Let's pray. Father, help us to have this kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul had with regard to our own freedom, that we might, first of all, be governed by what brings glory to you and also how that affects others in our witness and testimony so that they might come to Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.